The following podcast contains audio extracted from videos on the Mythology Explained YouTube channel. Please note that there are two narrators for this podcast, myself, Silas, and Zach. Please enjoy. The year is 1703. The day is the 19th of November. In France, a prisoner just died after 34 years behind bars. The death was kept quiet. The burial was rushed and things continued as if nothing had happened. Usually, such an occurrence was of little consequence. After all, prisoners died all the time. One dying was about as noteworthy as losing a horse to lameness, or to the birth complications that imperiled mothers and newborns. This particular prisoner, though, was unlike any other. The purpose of his imprisonment wasn't to punish for a crime committed, at least not just that. The purpose, the real purpose, you could say, was to erase him from the face of the earth, to make it as if he didn't even exist, shut away and left to fade like an old memory. According to the mythology that came to surround this man, a mask covered his face at all times, obscuring his identity. It was said that the mask was one of iron, but this detail was likely a dramatic embellishment layered atop a foundation of embellishment. If at all true, more likely the material was something softer, perhaps black velvet. Of course, mask or no mask, neither case much improved his plight. His dwellings, per the guesswork of certain strands of speculation, were different from those of a normal prisoner, purportedly appointed with amenities, even afforded certain luxuries, to one of his condemned contemporaries, if such postulation is believed, it would have looked a lord's chamber, richly furnished by comparison to the bleak filth they inhabited, nothing but the extreme austerity of stark stone. Despite tantalizing the imagination for centuries, the identity of this man remains something lost to history. Incarcerated anonymity became his life and would become, whoever he was, his legacy and death. Who was this man? A relative? A disgraced general? An Italian diplomat? A servant privy to information that could have embarrassed or exposed the monarchy in some way? Though history is replete with such questions, no one knows for certain, and at this point probably never will. The inexorable flow of time has a way of burying things, centuries like strata of sediment that layer over what's beneath. In 1711, years after the masked man's death, a correspondence was sent from the king's sister-in-law to her aunt, the Electress of Hanover. It describes all manner of conjecture and exaggeration. A pair of musketeers, it said, watched over the masked man at all times, ready to kill if the mask was ever removed. His cells were luxurious compared to those of other prisoners, even compared to the dismal dwellings of most free folk. His character was commented on, apparently a devout man, keeping God close in his heart. Amidst the court gossip that diffused among the elite and the rumors that spread across France, many theories emerged regarding who the masked man was, the most intriguing undoubtedly those the variety that involved the king's family, which variously centered on an illegitimate brother, the king's father, and even the king's own twin brother. That last was especially compelling, 
an expression of it even factoring into Alexandre Dumas' book, Le Vicomte de Bragelonne. In the story, an imprisoned man is discovered to be the king's own twin brother. After a failed plot to seat him on the throne in his brother's stead, he's re-imprisoned, an iron mask fixed to his face at all times to obscure his identity. About a century later, in the mid-1960s, Marcel Pagnol, a French novelist and filmmaker, wrote a book titled Le Masque de Fer, The Iron Mask. It expounds on his research and theories about the masked man, arguing that he was the king's younger twin brother, hidden away at birth to preempt any potential confusion that could jeopardize the throne. One of the main points that counters this is that there would have been multiple people present when the queen gave birth those there to assist, and those of higher rank to bear witness. With so many nearby, keeping secret the birth of a twin brother would have been difficult, very difficult. To this fact, Pagnol points out that the king broke custom by taking the whole court to the Chateau de Saint-Germain to celebrate. Apparently the convention was to do this several days before the birth implying that the reason for the change was to remove witnesses so that what was to transpire would be relatively unobserved. But alas, no theory has ever been elevated from conjecture to consensus. Many have been put forward over the years, and some have garnered support here and there. But none has emerged as the unequivocal, all failing to win out over the others in decided fashion. In 1669, during the reign of King Louis XIV, an arrest warrant was issued. The name on it was Ustache Doge, a person who did not exist, a phantom conjured up to facilitate the incarceration of who, it was deemed, must remain anonymous. Though the name was fake, the legal authority of the warrant was very, very real. The man whom the name indicated was taken in prison for 34 years most of it spent in isolation until the time of his death. Those 34 years were spent inside four different prisons, the last of which was the Bastille, a fortress in Paris that was used as a state prison. Though he was relocated several times, there was one constant. Benigne d'Auvergne de Saint-Mars was the principal jailer, serving in this capacity for three and a half decades. He entered the prisoner's cell once per day, conveying food and drink. The prisoner was prohibited from saying anything that didn't pertain to subsistence needs. The entrance to each of his cells had to have multiple doors, a precaution to keep away unwanted eyes and ears. Though same mouse was the jailer, to call him so and leave it only at that would be misleading. In the peculiar case of the masked man, he did indeed serve in this capacity. But this was an exception. Really, he was a prison governor, a fact that speaks volumes. That a man of such importance personally saw to this particular task unquestionably speaks to the consequence of the prisoner, who he was or what he knew. The relocation of the prisoner, rather than being an extra layer of security and secrecy, was tied to St. Mouse's own career. When he was given a new commission, the masked man would follow, relocated as household servants relocated when their master changed abodes. 
The first prison was at Pignerol, where St. Mouse was already the governor. A letter explained that Eustache Doge, a pseudonym for the masked man, would arrive in a month's time, delineating what the conditions for the condemned were to be. It was sent by the Marquis de Louvois, who ordered the following. The entrance to the cell needed multiple doors, insurance against the inquisitive, and a safeguard against spies. And the prisoner was not to utter a single word, under pain of death, beyond what was necessary for compliance and the communication of basic needs. The prison at Pignerol differed from most other prisons, special in its own little way. More than a repository for the refuse of society, it was a place where those who had shamed or sullied the state were kept. It was a place where people were brought to be forgotten about. These people were the boils that marred the cheek of the elite. For various reasons, each one different from the next, they couldn't be lanced and drained. The headsman's axe left unswung in each instance. Instead, the poultice of prison was applied, bombed and bandaged so as to be assuaged and made to slowly heal out of sight. Notable prisoners included such illustrious company as a financial minister who embezzled money, a nobleman who tried to marry the king's cousin without the king's permission, and an Italian diplomat whose duplicity and double dealings cost the French a strategic fortress. What's interesting about this first prison is that the masked man wasn't subject to the maddening monotony of nearly unrelenting isolation, which otherwise would only have been broken by the daily delivery of food and drink. The prison at Pignerol housed many of high rank. These people were entitled to a degree of luxury and leisure that would have been unimaginable for the average prisoner. Even behind fortified walls, bereft of their freedom, people of wealth and status benefited from the special privilege bestowed by who they were in their previous lives. Often they had manservants to attend them, but filling these positions could be difficult. Such servants, though technically not prisoners themselves, were effectively imprisoned alongside their masters. Volunteers weren't always forthcoming, many repelled by the undesirable aspects of what the position entailed. Thus it was that, given the dearth of willing people, the masked man was made to serve Nicolas Fouquet, the financial minister guilty of embezzlement mentioned earlier. It was decided that the masked man would serve in this capacity only when the regular manservant was unavailable. As well, the nature of Fouquet's imprisonment was integral to the masked man coming into his service. Fouquet was never to be released, so even if something untoward did happen, information divulged that shouldn't have been, the contingency was already in place, or so it was thought. As time would bear out, this wasn't as watertight as was hoped. The masked man was expressly prohibited from meeting anyone else, precluded from service if Fouquet intended to interact with other prisoners. In particular, Fouquet was friendly with Lausanne, the man mentioned earlier, who tried to marry the king's cousin without permission. Lausanne, unlike his comrade, was not to be in prison for the rest of his days. So not only was he another person, but was another person who would, after his eventual release, be able to disseminate sensitive information out into the world. Because of this, the masked man was doubly disallowed from being around 
while Fouquet and Lausanne met, but this was of no avail. As was decided, Fouquet never again tasted freedom, dying in prison in 1680. Going through his cell afterwards, a secret hole that connected Fouquet and Lausanne's respective chambers was discovered. The two had undoubtedly used it to surreptitiously communicate. It must have been, and was assumed, that Lausanne knew of the masked man. To mitigate any problems that could have come from this breach, a ruse was conceived to disorient and disinform. Lausanne was moved to Fouquet's cell, there told that the masked man had been released. Lausanne was released the next year. Once freed, what he shared and to whom about his years in prison is unknown. The masked man's first transfer also happened that same year, moving with Saint Mouse from Pignerol to the prison of Le Fort d'Exil. This would be the first of three transfers, likely because of the complications that arose. The masked man, it seems, was never used again as a manservant or for any other duties. The timeline for the 34 years he spent behind bars is as follows. Leaving Pignerol in 1681 after 12 years. Leaving Fall d'Exil in 1687 after 6 years. Leaving the island of Saint Marguerite in 1689 after 11 years. Dying in the Bastille after 5 years in 1703. He was long referred to as Eustache Doge, but he was quietly buried the day after his death as Malchioli, further obfuscating the life of this mysterious man. And that's it for this video. If you enjoy the content, please like and subscribe. Thanks for watching.